0: Morning. Good to see you. I live in New York, so thanks for uh, greeting a New Yorker today in New Jersey. Uh, Wine is my love language, so I may just join you for your fall tasting, and I'm serious. Um, So as we're looking at at the fruit of the Spirit, I don't want to assume that, uh, I don't want to assume anything, quite frankly. Paul has this, this letter to the Galatian community in the Roman Empire in the first century. And he says things like this. He gets to the end of of this epistle, this letter to this church. And in chapter five of six chapters, he goes through this amazing narrative of what it means to follow Jesus. And then he starts to give you this sort of like vision for what a life that that follows Jesus is actually supposed to look like. And he says things like this. The fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit of God that comes to dwell inside of us, it begins to produce something. This sort of life, it unfolds like this, a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And it continues on with some other sort of virtues or some other fruit, as he would say it. And so we're going to look into one of these fruits today. This past summer, I spoke on a few of the fruits. And so today I'm going to lean into goodness. Clay's going to be speaking some of the series as well about some of the other fruits, Um, But we're going to lean into goodness. In the psalm, if you've read Psalm 1, Psalm 1 is a really good place to start, obviously, chronologically, but it's a good place spiritually. If you've never read the scriptures, Psalm 1 begins with this beautiful, dramatic image of what a follower of God eventually becomes like. And it talks about the follower of God in this beautiful image, not propositions, but to say a follower of God is like this tree that is rooted by this stream of water, and it, it yields its fruit. It doesn't even depend on the season. It is so fixed in this one soil being, being nourished that it yields fruit both in and out of season. And I think that's an amazing sort of understanding of looking at Paul from the New Testament and then looking at Paul from the Old Testament of saying that this was sort of the story of God all the way through of who we're supposed to become And so I I love the fact that the psalm has a vision for your life, and it's about this. It's not about earning. It's not about striving. It's not about forcing these kinds of fruits to come in our life. It's about positioning your life, that following God is about positioning your life for God to work. Does that make sense? And I think so often we get it inverted that I gotta do all the right things, I gotta go to the right places, I gotta come to the right events, I gotta do the right courses, and then finally I'll be in the right spot. But I think what the gospel is constantly telling us is that following Jesus is about positioning your life for God to move. So let me ask you this question. How are you positioning your life intentionally for God to work? I mean, part of it is gathering corporately for worship. That's part of positioning your life, taking sacred time on a weekend and coming to worship with the community. But the other six days of the week, how are you positioning your life? And so I wanna raise three questions this morning, really simple, really quickly. The first one is this, what is the fruit of the Spirit? The second is this, what is goodness in the fruit of the Spirit? And the third one is this, what does it actually mean for my life? What is the fruit, what is goodness, what does it mean? How do I begin to move into that? So let's begin with number one. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Simple definition. Used it this summer. We'll continue to use it for the sake of redundance. It says this, the fruit of the Spirit I would define as outward signs of inner abundance. It's signs over the course of time that person follows God. It's becoming evident that the God of goodness is on that person. So it's these outer signs of what's happening internally. It's not outer things that eventually work themselves within you. It's something within you that is moving out, pushing out of the soil of your life, right? So it's sort of, It's sort of the idea of something being cultivated, not something you're forcing or manufacturing, but something that's happening in you that's beginning to move out. And it's more of what comes as a result of abiding with God rather than striving for virtue. And it means this, it means surrender, it means prayer, it means scripture, and it means community become non-negotiables for us because these are some of the ways that we position our lives for God To move. So when we read scripture, we don't read it pietistically or because it's a religious function. We read it because it nourishes that which calls deep within us and reminds us of our story and who we are. We don't pray because we should. We pray because conversation with God, just like conversation with a spouse or a friend, it deepens the relationship and causes the relationship to flourish. We don't do community because it's part of a checklist. We do it because we need others to see us, to hear us, to give us feedback, and to walk with us in all of the seasons of life. That these are some of the ways in which God works in us over the long arc of our lives. And so here's Paul. Paul's in the first century writing to Christians dominated in an oppressive Roman system. And I think what he's saying is this. He's saying, you believe in God, now what? Now what? What's supposed life supposed to be look like? What's life supposed to look like? Is it to believe in God to go to heaven someday, whatever that would mean? Maybe, but is there more than that? And I think to Paul's point, I think he speaks to us today. So I believe in God, at least some days. Now what? What's my life supposed to look like? What's the goal here? Like, what am I supposed to be walking toward, or is it just sort of ambiguous? I guess I believe in God, and I'm just going to go back to life as normal. What is my life supposed to look like? And I think Paul is giving us a vision that there is this fruit. There's this vision for your life like this tree that is being cultivated, that becomes beautiful for the world to experience. The second question is this, not what is fruit of the Spirit, moving beyond that. What is goodness? When Paul talks about goodness in this text in Galatians 5, what does he actually mean here? And I would, I would define goodness as this. It's this word, agathosune which is where we get the word Agatha, by the way. The name Agatha comes out of this term. And what is goodness? The, the, the definition I would give, goodness is a quality of inner life that yields a moral and spiritual compass. And I, I don't think that's how our culture would define goodness. Goodness would be that which is external and that which is going, like doing good philanthropy and doing good deeds and doing this bag thing you just talked about for, for giving food away. I think that's what would say, well, that's good. And it is good. But what Paul has in mind, first of all, is that there's something happening internally that makes helping a food pantry just what you long to do, what you want to do. You're not striving that to sort of cover up or pay the price for all the things inside of us that feels broken. That there's something in us that's stirring, that's moving, that begins to move outward and you begin to manifest good things into the world. In other words, you begin to, doing good because God is doing a deep work of goodness in you, that the God who is good is at work Producing goodness. That's one of the things about the fruit of the Spirit that we would say of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self control and goodness, that these are not things that are sort of tangential to who God is. These aren't separate from God's character. What Paul is saying is when you come to know God and you begin to walk with Him, God lives inside of you and begins to manifest God's self through your life. In other words, you begin to resemble God. That is is sort of the goal of life. It was the goal of life in Genesis 1 and 2. And I think God wants us to move back into that original vision of what it means to flourish as humans, which means to mirror this God that we claim is love and joy and peace and goodness. What I'm trying to do this morning is to free you from self-righteousness. I'm trying to free you from the burden of perfection, I'm trying to free you from all of the heaviness of getting everything right, and I want to call you to the simple task to allow God in your life, because that is transformative. It's not performance-based. It's surrender-based, and I think it's freeing for us, and I think the word goodness has a bit of a branding problem in our time, quite frankly, I think when you think about it, every faith, every philosophy has a strategy for how to become good, how to gain virtue. I'll give you an example. Like Islam has the five pillars of faith. Do these five things over the course of time and you'll be a good Muslim. Israel has the Ten Commandments and, and, and more than that, actually, to fulfill the law. Then you'll be in righteous standing with God, right? And when you fail, there's always Yom Kippur, right? It was the old covenant system. The ancient Greeks had virtue ethics, There's the popular golden rule. Recent society promotes that philanthropy is one of the ways in which we become a good person. But this is important because goodness for Paul, Paul isn't referring to strict moralism. Like when you read Galatians, the whole book, in fact, that would be a great thing for you to do this week. If you've never read Galatians, it'll take you about 30 minutes. Sit down with it one morning and just read it cover to cover. Sometimes you lose... Uh, when you come back to it the next day, if you just do one chapter at a time, that's fine. But to just read six chapters of this, it'll take you maybe 30 minutes. You get the full story that what Paul is calling you here to is freedom freedom from the law, that there's something greater that is now at work amongst us. And what Paul is doing is showing that to become good in life, to have goodness as a part of who we are. It's not derived through strict moralism or like goody two shoes is sort of the way that we talk about it and joke about it in our culture. It's an integrity in life without being self-righteous. Now, let me, let me show you some potential errors here. Here's on one side, there's a potential error called fundamentalism, fundamentalism. It's what's come out, it's what's misconstrued goodness over time, and it happens a lot in religious communities. It happens a lot in Christian communities, where it becomes performance-based, proving something, having to prove, having to prove something by all of your works, wanting to be showy, wanting to, wanting to like sort of show off how good you are, wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard for the good things you're doing, and it's fundamentalism. Often it's a disguise that there's actually not a lot going on in your heart. So you're having to do the extra work to perform to kind of put on a good show for everybody. And so you have this fundamentalism side. I love the words of Francis Spufford, the sarcastic British thinker. He says this, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up good people. Shiny, happy, squeaky clean. I don't know how you, like what orientation you had coming this morning, but these are sort of freeing words. So let this hit you. Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up good people shiny, happy, squeaky clean, and excluding bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. A community of acknowledged screw-ups ought, at least in theory, to be kind to one another. That's what we have in common. We're all sort of missing the mark, if you will. And so this idea of showing off righteousness is silly. It's silly because we all show up this morning so broken and so in need of God to move in our lives and so in need to be vulnerable to each other to say, you too, yeah, I'm struggling with that as well. And what would that open up toward transformation? So that's one side that you have is this sort of fundamentalism, religiosity, religious spirit showing off piety. And the other error when it comes to goodness, and this is true especially for our time, is relativism, relativism. This idea that, well, what's good to one person isn't always good to another, right? This, we have this sort of relativistic understanding of goodness in our culture, don't we? And I think relative goodness, think about this, it explains why some of you considered, really loved the show Game of Thrones, thought it was so good and gave some of, a lot of your life to it, right? It explains why some of you Relative goodness, year after year, will continue to believe that the Jets will finally be good. And we all just sort of know they won't. Relative goodness also explains why some of you think IPAs are a really good idea and tasty. And you're just plain wrong, because they're not, right? Like this idea of relativity. And the point is this. We've so relativized standards of goodness in our time that what is good? What does that even mean anymore? Because what's good to one person isn't to another. Let me just take you into history for a second. Historically, this has been a really big conversation. Perspectives on goodness have gone through these massive shifts. Let me explain, and this is gonna be oversimplified, but you'll get the point. Let me pull up this graph behind me. The pre-modern mentality, now this was before 1700, right? So let's step back into time for a moment. The pre-modern mentality was this. The predominant view was that good was outside And I'm so evil within that good is somewhere out there to be found or pursued, whether it's through tradition or ideology or community, but evil resides within me and it holds me back on my quest, right? This is where like medieval piety, medieval Christianity, like found its peak of, of all the self-flagellation and all of the things that we see historically of people saying, yeah, I'm so bad all the time within and, and I just carry that around with me all the time, right? And that was sort of like the dominant worldview for a long time historically. But then a shift happened and the post-late modern mentality shifted us, completely inverted it. And now you have evil is in the world, systemic political corruption, oppressive evil, but we're good inside. We're fundamentally, I'm a good person, right? But humans are basically good and all that is evil is external. And so we're all sort of victims of what's out there. So I can just shield myself. I can become a good person on my own. I just need some simple tips for living. Or if we could just tap into ourselves or get some self-help we can be back on our way to goodness. And I think the moment that we're in, if we could just just confess this sort of moment, it's a faux pas to even talk about sin, especially about ourselves. It's really like not a helpful conversation to bring up sin in a coffee shop. It immediately shuts people down. And I think they go to like this medieval concept, this pre-modern concept of like the sort of deplore, like depravity of yourself and it's all negative all the time. And so we have focused so far on the other side. And I think we're sort of losing track of what the scriptures say about this. Let me tell you what the scriptures say. The scriptures tell a story of about how we were originally intended to be. And here's how the story goes. In the beginning was God. And God did this and it was good. And then God did that and it was good. And then God did this and it was good. And then God shaped that and it was good. And then God did this and it was good. And then God did that and it was good. In other words, the outside world was originally created good. The world created was drenched in the goodness of God. And the reason it was drenched in God's goodness is because it came out of God who was good. That God produced outside of God's own character a beautiful world. And then something happened. God made this and said it is very good. That was God's pronouncement on creation because goodness is derivative of the one who is good. It was created with that vision in mind. But by the time you get to page three in the scripture, something happens. Humans use their freedom and goodness to rebel against this God. And ever since then, every generation, it has been sort of a mixed bag, both inside and outside internal corruption external corruption but it's a mixed bag the scriptures say the image of god is still in us but it's fractured it's broken it needs restoration it needs transformation it needs realignment with how was originally created to be good in other words ourselves and in this world it's this cocktail of good and evil combined and you don't have to look any further than the own, own motives of your own heart like i know myself as a pastor my motives are always a pie chart. It doesn't matter whether I'm giving to something. There's always something in me that's self-interested, that wants to be self-derivative for giving. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm this sort of cocktail all the time of good and bad. We get to this Mark chapter 10 passage, and I just want to read this. I'll put it on the screens behind us. It's really beautiful. It says, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, you got to love Jesus here. He critiques the question before he answers it. He's like, well, first of all, it's so Hebrew. If you know anything about the Hebrew mind, like the way they answer questions is to ask questions in return. It's so, it's so annoyingly frustrating. It's amazing. It's so high caliber thinking, quite frankly. And so Jesus returns his question with a question to deconstruct his question to say, your question actually isn't a good question. And let me tell you why. You're coming to me as a man. You think I'm just a rabbi and you're calling me good. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that you're coming to me. You don't know I'm, I'm the son of God. You think I'm just a good rabbi. You think I'm just a good teacher. But let me tell you, your standard of goodness is too low. Your standard of what, of what goodness really means isn't divine goodness that God is. It's human goodness of what I've performed and that I'm a rabbi. And let me give you a greater vision of what goodness is. You think I'm good because I have knowledge, because I go to temple, because I do charity. But God's standard of goodness is so far greater than yours. So let me just kind of tweak your understanding here, I think is what Jesus is saying. I think he's basically saying human standards of goodness, no matter how good someone is, still miserably fails in comparison with the goodness of God. So where does that leave us? I think the most important thing to be said this morning, it leaves us with a story that we find ourselves in. And it's a story of God taking back creation the way it was originally intended to be. It's a story of God saying, I'm not content with your brokenness. I'm not content with your fragility. I'm not content with the way you're living. And that's not a condemnation. It's an invitation to life. It's an invitation to more. And so what does this mean? What does this mean? What's the fruit of the spirit? What is goodness? Obviously, we're not there as to where we originally created to be. So, what does it mean for us? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound! It saved a wretch like me. Who penned those words? Anyone? It's a hymn writer. Actually, it wasn't at all. Turned into be a hymn. Guy named John Newton. Guy named John Newton. And if you don't know his story, let's just, let's just say this. Let me just say this again. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, our culture would say this. Wait a second. Let's back up. He just called himself a wretch. Now, how often do you hear that in our society? What you mostly hear is, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person, right? And there's probably aspects of that that's true. But here's John Newton calling himself a wretch, which if you look up wretch, it means a miserable despicable person to which if you're like me you'd say no that's a bit extreme you're a bit of a cocktail right that's a bit extreme john let's just chime down a little bit you're not that bad right don't be so hard on yourself donate to a couple charities and then you'll be on your way (laughs) except that wretch is actually a very polite word for what john newton was john newton was a slave trader here's a description of him He made his living transporting cargoes of kidnapped human beings in conditions of great squalor and suffering to places where they and their children and their children's children would be treated all their lives as objects to be sought, to be bought, sold, and brutalized. Some of John Newton's friends may have thought that his profession was only a bit unrespectable. We, on the other hand, recognize that he was participating in one of the world's greatest crimes, modern-day slavery. So you say, wretch? Listen, John Newton was a horror, but at least he came to know it. At least he had self-awareness that began to bring him into the true journey of transformation with God. At least he learned that something wasn't right. And so amazing grace became the process Through which he began to awaken. Became this process back to life. The wrinkle is this he wrote this hymn while on a boat transporting slaves, but he didn't write it because he realized that slavery was wrong and he was complicit in the system. He wrote it because he was worrying about boozing and swearing and playing cards on the Sabbath. That's what originally led him to God, is realizing, peeling back the first layer, wow, I am a mixed bag and I need something beyond my own charity work to sort of save me. And that's the weird thing. And what happened was over the course of time, the layers of the onion continue to be peeled back. And it says this, God went on to gradually show him dark, accurate visions of himself And it went on changing him until eventually he could not bear the darkness of what he did daily. And he gave up the trade and ended his life as a penitent campaigner against slavery. And at every stage, it had been said, the same patient guilt that led him on was amazing grace, which records its earliest gnawing at him is unwittingly faithful to the rest of what was coming to him. In other words, what happens is this in our life. When you experience the grace of God, and some of you would say you've you've had this moment before, the grace of God is a knife before its medicine. The grace of God will expose you before it heals you because the grace of God is so delicate to show you that you don't have it all together. But then the grace of God says this, It's okay because there is one who has come that has done the work for you. So surrender and trust and allow that God to begin work deep within your life. I want us to get off our own goodness for a minute and sort of evaluating ourselves. Well, am I good or am I not? How have I been this week? Have I been good? Have I been not good? I want us to get off that. And I just want to end by asking this simple question How deep will you allow God's goodness to penetrate your life? What happens is, like John Newton, if you allow the goodness of God to penetrate your life, it will continue to expose areas of you that are uncomfortable, that are annoying, that we want to honestly hide from. It exposes ourselves that we are a pie chart in life full of all of these mixed motivations. And that's what the Christian story does. It shows us mirrors of ourselves, but then it calls us by grace to something beyond we can manufacture, something beyond which is just piety and religiosity, something that is deep and transformative, and it's humbling, but it's enabling, and it's freeing, because this is what happens when you allow the goodness of God to go deep in your life. That is the moment you begin to see goodness coming out where God begins to push through the soil of your life, but it requires continual surrender. And that is the hardest thing for Americans to get our heads wrapped around because it means that we have to give up control. We have to give up managing our spirituality. We have to give up being okay with following God here, but not okay following God here. We have to move into fullness of surrender. And that's hard because we, we prefer control. We prefer to manage our spiritual lives because we don't want to get too radical, don't we? We prefer to hold our hearts a bit back because if we don't, where might that lead us? But here's the deal. And here's the kicker statement for this morning as we close. The smaller the opening you give God in your life, the lesser the goodness of God is able to pour in. The smaller the opening you give God in your life. And that's fine, That you are free to keep your opening very small. But the smaller you make that simple principle, the harder it is for the goodness of God to flow into you, which means you should have low expectation for the goodness of God to flow out of you into the world. And this is what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. It's asking questions. I know we want this beautiful life of flourishing, but are you willing to allow God in your life? Second Corinthians five says, so if anyone, race, language, ethnicity, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And this is from God who has reconciled us to himself from Christ. In the Greek, there's no subject or verb. Here's how it's translated. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, something new has happened. And all I can say is this in my own story. When God found me, I felt exposed. I felt had. I felt caught. I felt, and I haven't even been thinking about it. God found me in a moment. And it was just this, this moment where I felt like I had this choice before me. And it's the same choice that I have to make every single day of my life. And the choice is this. Will I reject God and the prompting I'm sensing in the inner spirit of my life, in my inner consciousness? Or will I receive God? Am I an invitation for God to move? Or am I sort of rejecting God because I'm in fear of what that might mean? So I would close by saying this What kind of tree do you want for your life? What kind of vision do you have for the quality of your inner life? What vision do you have for that? And this morning, would you just take the next step? And, and let's not, I'm, I'm not going to go through like five ways you can take this next. I'm just saying, whatever you are sensing right now, whatever is, we'll call that the Holy Spirit nudging you. Whatever you're sensing is that in that next step, maybe it's saying, I, I've got to stop this. Or I've got to start this. I've got to create space for God to move. You know that's the definition of discipline. All discipline is, is opening space for God to move. What would that look like Monday morning? I know it's busy. I know you got kids. I know you got work. I know you got school. But what does it look like for you to begin to open just some more space for the goodness of God to pour in? To shape your lens for your day? What would that look like? What kind of tree, what kind of nutrients might that soil your life? That the goodness of God may pour into you, that as Paul has said, goodness may begin to be fruit in your life for the people around you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, for you. I thank you for for your presence. I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, that we can gather freely this morning and say yes to you. And I pray, Lord, maybe for the first time this morning that you're just prompting someone's heart in this room to say yes for the first time. And I would also just pray for those that are needing to say yes again, who are just in a spirit of rebellion, a spirit that I often feel in my life, where I just, I want autonomy, I want my own thing, I want to decrease your capacity in my life and I want to just increase my own will. And so God, I just renounce that. I say that's not where freedom is found. That's not where flourishing is. Flourishing is found in surrender, ironically, paradoxically. And so God, this this morning as we come to worship, as we come to gather around your name, I pray that you would open up wider holes in our life for your spirit to come in and change our lives. Would you do that in this space? And we ask you to come and to be present in us. In the name of Jesus, amen.